Hi listeners, welcome back to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ren Levy. This is part two of our interview with Loft, the 19s hacking crew that basically invented responsible reporting of bugs and told the Senate they could take down the United States' entire internet, among other things. If you haven't yet, check out part one of the discussion or go to our YouTube channel where the video version is already live. And now let's jump right back into Nate Nelson's conversation with Loft members John Lester, Count Zero, Chris Weisopel, Weld Pond, Joe Grand, Kinkpin, Christian Rio, Dildog, and Chris Thomas, Space Rogue. Same as in the previous episode, I'll be jumping in once in a while to provide some context where needed. Enjoy. It comes through why this place was kind of cool and why you guys were joining up. But like, what motivated you guys to get together so much to do this work, to, to interact with these companies? Like, what was the reason to stick around and, and spend so much fun. time with this stuff? It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. fun. I mean, yeah. that's an important question, though, because that that hap- that was, that happened later on in the in the progression of the loft, right? So, like, Weld was looking at vulnerabilities in '93, but it wasn't probably till what '95, and especially when Dildog came on, when getting the publicity of the vulnerabilities and sharing that information and and trying to change people's view of coordinated disclosure or all of that stuff was a much later on thing. But it started just like the original loft started as this curiosity and it was fun. And that's how it just progressed um, as the kind of industry or as technology progressed at the same time. So it wasn't a conscious, I don't think, a conscious decision all of a sudden to be like, let's do this. It was it was fun, right? And you got I think, to it, I think it was really it was loft crack, I think was the demarcation point. Because Dill, I think you came on after loft crack. Right? Just briefly after, yeah. I, yeah. I was helping to write the sort of next generation of loft crack code base. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it started off as just an open source thing, and then uh, there was a, a Windows port that that people, we did a lot right because we did the open sell. source command line thing, and we gave it away. Yeah, and then, and then we, we realized the that companies version. were making money off our free code. We're like, well, wait a minute, if people are running audits uh, using Loftcrack for free, like maybe we should charge companies fifty bucks or whatever. Because yeah. and I think Loftcrack really was the demarcation for us to go from, oh, this is a fun hobby play around yeah. thing I, and we're releasing info and, and making the world better. But after Loft Crack, we're like, okay, we can do all that stuff from before and make you know some money. Also, I've done, I've done a lot of work over the years before Loft and since then with um, developing communities of uh, people in different ways, shapes and forms around technology, around education. And the real seed that carried on, I think, through the whole time of the loft was this sense of being pioneers. And that is a very unique atmosphere. You know, in the initial days of being a hacker, you were a pioneer, meaning that, yeah, there's no Google the answer. There's like, you have to, being a pioneer means you're not only in a new space, but you are relying on other people to help you navigate and understand this new space, new information space, new physical environment, new virtual environment. And what happened was in those early days, people forget that, you know, it, there was, you had to rely on people and social networks and connections to understand what was going on and to discover and make, and then when you made innovations, you then shared those innovations with other people. And the evolution of that going from an open sharing to then it can really change over time, but the core DNA stays the same. 
and and then this pioneering community then turned into a business model you know then okay now we're going to apply those same pioneering attitudes to business we're going to you know and but it, it all comes down to i think the fact that it was it was a pioneering time it was it was so unique in that there was such limited accessibility to information. I was going through my old pictures, putting up different ones here, you know, here are the old vaxes outside in the loading dock in the old loft. But we used to, I mean, the, just manuals. We used to, I had a pic, I have a bunch of pictures of Brian Oblivion and myself filling U-Hauls full of manuals because you couldn't access them any other way. There were no, oh, go online and look for it. Go Google it. Um, so I think that's- um, No, I, I, I totally agree, John. But I also think part of it was we had- it was a we were pioneering and we had access to resources that other people didn't have because Boston has we had a lot of high tech companies but even more importantly we had MIT and Harvard and these are places that themselves were researching this stuff so the stuff that they were throwing away we were able to you know harvest that and be able to repurpose it and, and whatever. So it's, it was both like an attitude, but also it was like, there was like fertile land for us to, yeah. to sort of I, I, dumpster dive in. Exactly. <laughs> I like that fertile yeah. land, fertile land. That's what it is. It's like pioneers out in the yeah. fertile landscape. <laughs> you know, Raleigh, you go for the Oregon trail, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have been able to, to do what I did um, if I hadn't been at MIT at the time and already on I, my, my fraternity house had a whole class B of internet space allocated to it. Um, so I, you know, learned about routing. I learned about IP networking and all, all the stuff just by being there. Um, and then when I realized that 2,600 meetings were happening and that there, the loft who I had seen the website of the loft at MIT, I was like, you know, doing in, in the Athena cluster, doing my homework and I, I was perused around and you could, back then you could probably browse the whole internet uh, if you wanted to uh, and uh, the, the whole web. And I, I found the Loft homepage. I was just like, oh, these guys are doing some pretty cool stuff. And I just thought nothing of it. On my own was just like, you know, dinking around with Windows 95 when it came out and realized I could crash Internet Explorer. I was like, okay, actually, this is interesting. Um, you know, I can make this do something. Um, and it was after that, it was like around 1995, 96, that I realized that, oh, wait a minute, these guys are actually just in my backyard. Like, I could probably go find the Loft folks if I wanted to. But let's, this 2600 meeting would be a pretty cool thing to go and meet other people doing this kind of stuff. So I printed out my exploits, had them on a piece of paper, and went to 2600. Sure as hell, it was like uh, Barn and Bolivian and Weiss Opal and, and, and Space Rogue and Mudge. And those, everybody was just there, just hanging out, going to get beers and stuff after. It was just like, all right, that was awfully convenient. And, you know, we had a lot to talk about. So, yeah, we used to go to MIT after the 2600 meeting to the Athena clusters and play, what was it, NetTrek? Yeah, we would go to Athena clusters early on Sunday mornings while we waited in line at the flea. Yeah. And you'd yeah. log in as root with Mr. Root, root right? Mr. Root. It was the same password everywhere. By accident. So that was internet access before we even had internet at the loft. We would go to MIT to do that. In the early days, each of the guys threw in some money for the rent, electricity, and other expenses of running the loft. They even shared the space for a while with a hat-making business run by Count Zero and Brian Oblivion's wives. They tinkered with what they already had lying around or could find dumpster diving. But things change, of course. By the end of the 90s, many of the Loft hackers had quit their day jobs, incorporating under the name Loft Heavy Industries. 
They've done some white hat hacking for some of the world's biggest companies, whether those companies asked for it or not. They testified before the Senate, were featured in the New York Times magazine profile, and even an MTV show called True Life. They'd also moved into a nicer space, the New Loft. Yeah. I think it's important to note, though, too, like because we kind of jumped from the early to sort of later, like there is this transition period in the loft that a lot of people don't really talk about, right? And because we had some um, press coverage, community coverage back in the early days with like Annalisa Savage's Unauthorized Access, which is an amazing documentary that really shows that hacker community spirit, you know, the, the hacker ethos of the original loft. That's an amazing thing to see. And then you jump to the later time where, um, you know, we were on a lot of these larger media outlets trying to share what we're doing, but a lot of it was because of vulnerabilities and research and showing what hackers, you know, can do. But there was a real transition between, I would say, this kind of grassroots, you know, scary, dirty warehouse kind of area into moving to Watertown, into a different spot with more of a goal at that point of like, let's see if we can, you know, have a have a nicer space and and sell some you know stuff to survive and see if we can do this uh eventually see if we can do this full time so there was a conscious transition also you know there some of the work we were doing was this this normal natural transition but the physical movement of the loft was another demarcation point that a lot of times we don't talk about right and it's like i personally well, had we like count zero was at the old loft. He was not at the new loft. And that was a major, major shift in how the loft ha- was operating really. And well, the, we also first- lost other people in the shift like Golgo. I think white That's Knight right. was moving, but Golgo stopped. He didn't come yeah. to the new loft either. That's right. And white Knight, I remember, <laughs> I remember always starting fights with him in the, in the parking little parking area, loading dock of the loft, even though he was like way older and would always kind of beat me up. But it was like, yeah, it was a, it was a major shift. And, and there were lots of reasons that happened. But being a young kid, I just sort of went along with it. But, you know, that's a transition spot. I'm sure Zero has something to say about it, of like not to put him on the spot. But it's like there was that time where we said, OK, let's we're move our leases up. Let's move to somewhere different. Right. And like that, it, 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 it not it wasn't all rosy all the time. It, no, I, I think mean, there, it was, there was, yeah, there was, ahead, there was you know, there was there was, um, you know, there's always going to be. Communities change; they evolve, they they shift. People come and go, and it was you know it was it was definitely a different perspective. You know, I mean, at the time, like I wasn't interested in in stuff as a business. You know, and and so you know that was that was you know that was that was that. You know, in retrospect, I'm a lot older now, and I've seen a lot of other things come and go and grow and evolve, and I've been involved in different startups that come and go grow evolve acquire and all that stuff and it's the same story it's always the same story it's it's just that there are different the, the trick is just understanding where you are in the story because it is a story that changes over time any healthy community will, will evolve and change like that over time so it was it was um you know in retrospect i think it's a um the whole story is beautiful, but it is, it is a narrative with like in any other narrative where you have characters come and go and people were critical at one moment. And then at another moment, they didn't have a role anymore because the story had changed. 
That's bring up a, a good really, point, Joe, because yeah. the the fact that we had such major transitions and more than one of them, at any point along that, as John calls it, the story, that we could have ceased to exist. Like it could have fallen apart. We all went our separate ways. Um, you know, the transition to Watertown is one of those was those transitions. The transitions to a business is another one of those transitions. Uh, and there's probably a couple other ones if we sat down and analyzed it. So the fact that we were able to keep it together for what eight nine years it was, and then uh, you know, and then the, the the end game was totally the end game. But uh, I think the fact that uh, it lasted as long as it did is pretty pretty amazing. I I love yeah I, I love that explanation. It's a story, right? And communities change and. And things are sort of evolving as the world is turning and evolving and everything. Did you feel that way at the time? Because you had, that was sort of, you know, you had oh, helped me? start the community. Yeah. I mean, that was your baby, right? And like, it was such a spot where yeah. looking back, it's like, oh, it's a narrative of the story. But for me, I still feel guilty. You know? <laughs> like, no, no. At the time, I was kind of freaking out too. I guess I didn't understand what was happening. I just wanted to, things to stay the way they were growing in my mind. Right. I hadn't, you know, I had, I was working at Mass General. I was focused on my career in neurology, you know, and, 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 you know, and I wasn't thinking, I was like, I'm not really interested in, I mean, it's funny. Like if, if, if I went back in time, like now I'd be like, yeah, let's do this business. Here's a business model. Let's do this. You know, this is kind of fun. I'm into that now. At the time, at the time I was just like, kind of, you know, clueless about that. And it was, and it was just, cause I was, we're all different people at different points in time in our lives. And at the time, I was just not the right person. I fully accept it now. Back then, at the time, I was just like, "Whoa, this is blow- this is kind of this is messed up, man." And what's going on? You know, I was confused more than anything else. I was c- more confused than I was mad at anyone. And um, but you know, the, again, the the perspective of time and me having seen how things play out in other systems and my own career path and businesses that I've been involved in, it's it's like, wow, that's. It's, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And it's like, yeah, this is the rhyme. What does it take to end cyber attacks? At Cyber Reason, we can tell you exactly what it takes. It takes an army of battle-tested defenders on a mission. Defenders who fight the foes that operate under the cover of digital darkness. Defenders who think, move, and adapt faster than cyber attackers. Defenders with the technology and effortless automation to spot an attack forming on computers, mobile devices, servers, and the cloud, and alert you when it matters most. To end cyber attacks, it takes the brightest minds in global cyber intelligence working to deliver future-ready protection to guard your data wherever the fight moves. Cyber Reason is ready to win the battle, with you and for you. In the fight to end cyber attacks, we are the defenders. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. So if it really was this sort of old loft, new loft, these transitions as you guys became more mature and a little bit more official and you start to get attention, in what ways did those years affect you? Like through your eight or nine seasons of this sitcom, how did you change from Joe, you getting arrested and being this like 16 year old kid to the people that you guys became when you left? Were you now like full professionals? How did you change during those years? I have to say that I, my mindset now is exactly the same as it was back at the loft. And I'm still not as young, but I'm still the same punk hacker kid 
I just happened to be able to do what I love to do. But the mindset never changed. And other people have had different transitions, right? Like, like Count Zero said, the story, everybody, everybody's perspective is different and everybody's place in their life at that time was different. Um, but besides all of the early days of, you know, kind of learning and, and kind of mimicking what all these guys were doing, the later years taught me a lot about loyalty and um, how not to run business and how, you know, support of friends should come first. So a lot more of life lessons than technical lessons um, that I still struggle with. And I still uh, remember all the time. And every time I do something in my life, it's like, all right, I've had that experience and that didn't turn out well because we didn't talk about it. Or I'm not going to start another business with friends because I didn't like how it ended. And there's a reason why I, I work almost exclusively independently, except with very few people that I trust, right? So it's a lot of the personal issues that because it was these formative years um, of all of the experiences, both good and bad, like were major, major shifts. I, I would not be, I would not be the same person if it wasn't for joining the loft at first, right? And all of, all of those things, but everybody has a different perspective. Well, for, for myself, I was a software developer when I came to the loft. And then five or six, five years later, I decided to transition into becoming a cybersecurity professional. And I got my first job doing that, um, like 97 or so, 98. And I think the same thing happened with Mudge. Mudge was a programmer. And then around that, maybe a little bit earlier than that, he decided to to do that. So um, I, I don't think I'd be in security today if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the loft, because there was a, you know, there was a huge, I mean, it was like, to some degree, it was more important than my career to be part of the loft, right? It's like interesting, like a lot of people, their hobby is more important than their day job. Um, but certainly in this case, that, that was that, and that really influenced my career afterwards. But you said that you you said that you turned into doing security even back then, right? It was it was a much smaller uh, group. Like Dill said, there was one guy working security at Microsoft.com. So getting into a security career, mm -hmm. I think was was part of the loft helping create that or helping raise awareness of that, the that's true. That the, the loft uh, almost created the security career as we know it I mean, for a I lot mean, of we people. Cr we crashed through a lot of walls. We forced the hand of the industry a bit by you know pulling their pants down on a regular basis. Uh, you know, something had to, to fill that space. We spilled, we, we felt ourselves filled a large quantity of it. Corporations, other companies, people that wanted to do what we were doing, um, you know, filled that space as, as we forced it open. Um, you know, making a market has been a thing. Uh, you know, being the, the tip of the spear for, for InfoSec is been an interesting challenge you know uh you know we we started off with the loft doing advisories we then you know uh, you know ended up doing ad stake with the consulting thing you know legitimizing the careers of, of a lot of people that would otherwise have done that kind of work anyway but maybe illegitimately um and then you know uh with voice oval and myself we, we founded vericode and proceeded to you know uh automate application security analysis and you know trying to take the things that people were doing by hand and automating them so they would scale. So that's sort of a natural progression is that sort of defining the need, 
meeting the need, but then scaling as the need grows. You know, that's sort of a pretty standard sort of uh, way of, of building an industry is, you know, when you identify that a need exists, you figure out how to meet the need. But then as that need becomes, you know, as people realize they can depend on it, as, you know, as people realize that security is important and that, they, you know, it's actually something they can leverage, you know, in order to grow online businesses and things like that. You know, if every online business failed because of hackers, there wouldn't be any online businesses. So as, you know, this industry grew up around the security thing as being something that needed to happen, what the work we were doing became more and more important over time. Uh, it's unclear whether or not we created the problem and then created the solution or not. I kind of laugh at that and, you know, giggle myself to sleep about it every night. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more like we were there when the problem was the thing and noted that, hey, you know, as a hacker, you, you, you find how to break things, but you also might, you know, catch a glimpse of how to prevent yourself from being able to do that thing. You know, how would I fix this problem? And that's almost as, just as tangibly interesting. You know, you, you can break something, but then you can like, you know, if you can find a way to automate or make it easy to, to, to raise the bar on your own attack, suddenly, you know, you're, you're contributing to the public good. And, you know, I always wanted to do that, you know, and I'm, you know, these days, you know, I, I'm still automating application security and application security analysis is my job. My, my, my private projects are more in the realm of privacy and social media and stuff. I'm not going to get into what those are, but I've got some nascent ideas on how to improve uh, online communication and, you know, moving in the general direction of identifying problems and trying to find better technologies and ways of solving those problems for people. And, you know, I think that um, everyone at the loft has done that in some way through their careers. Um, I don't know if it's changed us personally, like I know it did for me. I know my goals are, are far more le less, uh, it used to be a much more shiny thing is in front of me, I'm just gonna play with it. And now it's more mission oriented. Like I have some goals to improve privacy online. I have some goals to automate application security and I'm, I'm moving more toward goal oriented than I am like the sort of, you know, dealing with the shiny thing in front of me and just playing with whatever's in front of me. Yeah, so maybe I've changed a little bit in my, you know, how I've, you know, where uh, my drivers are personally, but you know, how I go about doing what I do is basically the same. Seven days after Y2K, an unexpected kind of partnership was announced. Laughed Heavy Industries was merging with At Stake, an internet security startup with $10 million in backing and some big tech executives behind it. Media outlets noted that it was odd to have guys named Count Zero, Kingpin, and Dildog join up with a very mainstream kind of company. But in retrospect, it was revealing, a signal that hacking wasn't just for the kids anymore. By joining at stake, the loft was basically over. Its members went on to take security jobs at other companies like Symantec, which acquired at stake four years later. I think also with, with, that, with that transition of like turning the loft more into a business, there was still the underlying, you know, we're still part of the hacker community. We would still have our parties. Um, I, you know, fondly remember going to the loft on weekends and just hacking on stuff for no reason, just like back in the day. And Space Rogue was there always too. And he would also drive Every me home. Day. Um, so there was still that love of technology and that, that love of hacking and that passion 
still traveled through this whole story, right? It's just um, the business side started to make a little more sense of like, hey, let's do this. And like, uh, you know, all the guys had full-time jobs that they quit uh, when we started at stake. Actually, I had, I had my first full-time job. I had been an engineer for a year in a product development company. But for me, it was easy because I was still young. And it's like, sure, quit, quit the job and try and see what happens. But I think Weld already had a family and it was a pretty significant uh, kind of shift to try to start a company. But it, there was always that underlying love. And I think that started to probably die for people myself definitely when we were at at stake and sort of saw the realities of of the larger picture and it wasn't just hacking for fun anymore it was like oh the venture capitalists want to make a profit yeah um, but before we got to the vc like the goal was just to make enough money so that we didn't yeah. have to pay rent yeah. right and, and then it was okay so we paid our rent now let's pay, pay make enough money so we can pay ourselves so we can just hack all the time right and then it became oh well we need we're going to go vc so it was like stages like it wasn't just like okay let's go make a million dollars let's start small and pay rent yeah that's a good I, point and do the do the, the security analysis for what um like the assessments for ctp and some other places that yeah i mean it was starting to make that transition but as it got more serious the fun started getting sucked out of it I think so. Right? Like, I, any business, right? I think there was another part that it was separate from the business that was we were kind of because we were so well known and open, and you know we we, we became sort of a crossover between the hacker community and the business community, between the hacker community and the government, um, and of course the Senate testimony was the biggest crossover of that. But uh, because we were open and outspoken, we would have people from, you know, academia, you know, Marcus Raynham, who, who can make the claim to be the inventor of the firewall, I think, would come over and certainly the inventor of the IDS um, would come and, and want to learn from us and interact with us. And it was a little bit of a love-hate relationship. He didn't really like hackers, but he was really intrigued by what we were doing. And the government was really intrigued by what we were doing. So I, I think that, you know, separate from the thread of us getting more business-like over the years, just becoming more open to interacting with government and just other businesses, not to make money, just to educate, um, was, was a big part of that, you know, sort of second phase of the loft before At Stake. I have a great um, printout from Guides, which was a, another local hacker <laughs> from back in the day, um, it was like locked sells out, blah, blah, blah. Space Rook shaking his head. It's, you know, but it, it was a time like Weld said, you know, we testified in front of the Senate. We were kind of, um, dancing with the government a little bit, not as, not as like rats and not in that form, but as far as educating them about hackers, um, at the same time, dancing in the business world and then still dancing in the hacker world. Um, nobody had done that successfully right and it was something that was so new and it pissed off a lot of people and and guides article and from the hacker side is the hacker perspective of like sellouts blah 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 um so it was really an interesting time and then from the academia side it was like oh these guys you know how can you even trust them they're not even using their their real names so we kind of got hate from all these different sides but there was still this sort of respect or curiosity about what we were doing and trying something new. So it was the love hate 
kind of thing. And there was a lot of pressure too, I felt at that point of you had this reputation of what the loft was um, that was maybe bigger than what we were or something like that. And, and it well, we, we tried to do that, right? <laughs> well, we tried to, but then it almost went a little too over the top. Cause we loved the press. Um, we managed we the right? press. We managed <laughs> we loved the press. But that was important to share that message, but it became a, it became a bigger, we, we, we had a bigger reputation than I think maybe. And I think that's partly what saved us. Like we earned a lot of goodwill in the early years in the hacker community and other areas and other communities. And so when we did finally go to the business route and we did start getting some of that, uh, you know, disgruntled sour grapes put at us, the fact that we had built up the reputation and goodwill amongst the various communities, I think helped us a lot because it could have gone a lot worse. And we were afraid of that at the time. We were really afraid of being labeled the big sellouts by a large majority of the, uh, the community. Uh, and we did sit that to a little bit, but I don't think it was anywhere near as bad as we thought it was going to be. And it actually opened the floodgates, right? Because after after the loft sold to at stake, then it was like a bunch of other security consulting companies started coming with a lot of other hackers that were in the community. So we sort of got the brunt of it. It's like, you know, when a garage band has their first major label. But then after that, it sort of shows, oh, this, you know, heavy Every, metal. Yeah. It's now oh, wow. Movie. Rap guys can get, you know, yeah. major label deals now. Yeah, I mean, exactly. the security industry exploded in 2000, if you remember. I have a talk that I give. I have a slide with a NASCAR shot of all the logos of all the companies that started in 2000. And there's like almost two dozen companies that were founded between 1999 and 2000. And you have to wonder, where did all these security companies come from? Who are these security experts? Like, they didn't exist in 1998. And suddenly in 2000, you have two dozen companies being security experts because they were all hackers, Right. Nobody admitted it, but they all got VC and they all started their own companies. Uh, you know, I could name half a dozen. It was uh, uh, Foundstone, right? Garden, Garden. At Stake. Uh, anyway, there's a bunch more. Uh, ISS, right? Got eventually bought by. Anyway, uh, where did all those com- all those companies come from? They were all hackers, right? Uh, and they all got their VC and they all whatever happened to them after that. But uh, it was 2000 and the Y2K fear uh, and some of that money bled over into uh, security industry. You know, there's another, another interesting point about that. It's kind of, it's post loft, but I think worth mentioning as far as that transition of hacker, hackerdom to uh, more well, well-known, you know, security stuff is uh, when we had started at stake, one of the big primary motivators is like, the, the executives were like, yeah, hell yeah, we're hiring hackers. We're going to tell all of our clients, yeah, we use hackers because they understand the technology, blah, blah, blah. Really proud of it, right? And we That was before sh- the executives showed up, right? Exactly. After the yeah. real executives came, that all ended. Yeah, it was very early on. And and um, it was like, we had shirts. It was like at stake and on the back, hacker, right? Because when we, when we sold the loft to start at stake, it was very important for us to try and maintain the what we were doing of this vendor independence, vendor neutral. If we find a a vulnerability, we want to release it. If we're doing security research, we want to do it regardless of who our customers are. Um, And, and the early executives were very much into that, but then, you know, as the the board got bigger, whatever, more um, less security executives came in or, or people from that world, they're like, wait a second, no hackers are bad. So like, you know, our entire career of trying to, or eight year career of trying to share this hacker message of like, no, not all hackers are bad. Um, totally went down the toilet. And then they sw- totally switched their tune and would never even mention that we were hackers. So you did have this, you know, 
where all the people came from, I don't know. There were some from the community, but there were a lot that just all of a sudden became experts. And at the same time, it's like trying to sort of, you know, change history and rewrite history. But hackers are important and they were then and they'll continue to be important. And whether they're on the bad side or the good side, um, it's, it's keeping everybody going. And it is kind of a cat and mouse game these days, but to try to pretend that you're not a hacker or that you don't have that mindset um, is, is to me sort of ridiculous. These days, the Loft crew is most often associated with their Senate testimony. But that's just the most famous example of a much broader legacy, of being the guys who 30 whole years ago were trying to tell us those same things we're still arguing about now. The internet isn't secure. Companies aren't secure. It doesn't take more than a few smart hackers to do a lot of damage. They tried to warn Microsoft, the United States government, Yet even today, we see major organizations falling victim to the same kinds of threats Luft was dealing with in their day. Well, guys, we've already been speaking for over an hour. Um, so I, I suppose I'll only ask one more last question to get any last thoughts out there. You know, in our world today, the world of the MS exchange hack that looks so much different than what you guys were doing back then, you look back, what is the legacy of what you guys were able to achieve? In what ways did you influence the world that we now have today? And if Loft were still around, if you guys were all working in, you know, the uh, one Loft together, uh, what would you be doing uh, with all of your collective brains? I'd be running the Loft Foundation, the nonprofit segment of the Loft Heavy Industries, yeah. which would be involved in educational outreach, um <laughs> that's we should do that us. that's amazing love foundation that's a deep question i think the the legacy is maybe just showing what a group of like-minded passionate individuals can do but i think it's also it also shows at least the early days that you can do things and explore and be curious and 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 just live life without this ulterior motive of trying to be successful or trying to make money or however other ways you define it. Um, of course, that's easier said when you're young, but you can do great things without always trying to worry about being famous, being rich, being whatever, right? Being social media influencer, all this stuff. I get a lot of emails of people saying, oh, how do I you know, become a hacker? And it's always like, well, if you're asking that question, then you probably won't be <laughs> because you can teach the technical stuff, but you can't really teach the mindset. Um, though I try a lot of times. Uh, but I, you know, the loft just was at this perfect time in, in the world, uh, and in technology. And it was, it was just an amazing spot that maybe not exactly could be replicated, but you, you've seen sort of hacker spaces build off that and communities build and, um, maker spaces and, and other more public spaces kind of grow on that. So I think it just shows the power of community if people are passionate and, and work together. It, it, no, it, it, I think it's at the frontier. It's about the frontiers too. It's the, the, the legacy is the importance of the right there. types of hacker mentalities around frontiers. Frontiers always exist. We always think that we've conquered them all. 
I study history a lot, the history of technology adoption. People always assume, yeah, we've conquered all these frontiers. You know, like, for example, you know, one frontier I've been involved in since the last past was um, the, uh, you know, the whole blockchain Bitcoin space, which didn't exist pre-2010, right? You know, and um, there's always frontiers. And the trick is to find the people with the hacker mentalities who are involved in the frontiers. And and I think Loft, the story of the Loft is a perfect example of how that technology frontier and community um, could grow. Both John and Joe, you both mentioned like hacker mentality. And that's like, that's a big part of my current job is because I, I run our internship program here at, at IBM at X-Force Red. And I'm constantly looking at resumes and interviewing students who are going through cybersecurity degree programs at prestigious universities, which totally did not exist, you know, when we were around. Uh, and so, and, and I'm and a lot of these kids are really bright and they have a, a lot of technical knowledge, but I have to weed through, you know, a thousand resumes and look for those students who have that hacker mindset, because that's what we're looking to hire yeah. and run them through our program. Uh, and, and I think that's, it's a big part. I like to think of the legacy is that we're trying to, promote and forward hackers, right? And, and people who are uh, generally curious about technology and how to make it do stuff that it wasn't designed to do. Um, so it, it's, it, and that's, that was what we were doing at the loft, right? We were just trying to, to bend tech into our will. And so, uh, and, and you're right, Joe, you can teach the tech stuff. I can teach you uh, whatever you need to know tech wise. I cannot teach you how to think. And that's what I need is I need people who to know how to think like the hackers. And it was, and it was lucky to have you. Right? So They're lucky to have you as the internship leader. So, so, so for me, I think part of the legacy is like challenging your environment, like challenging the world. Like don't take everything as face value as dictated by the government or by academia or by corporations. Cause we blew all that away. Right. Like we, we, we didn't take any of that stuff at face value. We're like, what does it actually do? How can I manipulate it? How can I change things by educating people ab ab about something in a different way? So I, I think for, for me, a lot of it is, you know, challenging the status quo and don't, don't, don't be afraid to, you know, do some research and then educate the world. Yeah. And that's more important now probably than ever, right? It's like, you really have to question and think on your own and try and, and not, not necessarily trust, but prove, right? Trust, but verify. And all, all of these things that is sort of that same mindset. And, and it's, if people can look back and be like, oh, the loft did that, like maybe I can try to do something like that. Um, but I think that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that stuck with me uh, was the fact that uh, the kinds of I guess you could call it intellectual property, but the information that we generated at the loft, things we discovered, that, that stuff was powerful. Um, the, the key to activism is knowing that the information that you have is powerful and that you can change things with just a little bit of the right information. You know, I see a, a trend uh, over the various years, uh, you know, over the last 10, 20 years uh, toward online activism and hacktivism and people uh, leveraging hacking skills to uh, make an asymmetric playing field to tilt things toward, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, their particular aims. Uh, and, and, you know, you could affect some very good change in the world and shine light in dark places that need it uh, with a very little bit of information and a little bit of skill. Uh, and, you know, the loft did that early on, you know, companies were brushing these huge bugs and vulnerabilities under the rug for their own gain, because, you know, sure as heck was easier to ignore them than to fix them. 
you know, but it was just a little vulnerability, you know, text file or, or an exploit that was able to, to shift the, the, the direction of some of these large companies. You know, the same thing is happening now with, with countries and political parties and, uh, you know, organizations uh, that, you know, affect public policy uh, and, and huge companies that are social media giants, you know, have, you know, these horrendous privacy practices. And it's the little actions of hackers, which are actually minuscule, you know, honestly, uh, that are having the biggest effect on, on, on making, you know, public good policy changes that you know, actually happen out there. I've gotten a real bent lately for online activism and, uh, you know, dealing with communities that are extremely toxic and how, to, how can hackers help? You know, the, 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 the thing that, you know, is important to remember when you have all these sort of built up hacking skills that you've, you know, worked on over the years is that they're not useful unless you do something do something with your skills, change the world, you know, make, make an impact. It can be through a very little thing. You can, you know, you can change the world through a keyhole if you're doing it right. And that's, you know, very much what I learned at the loft was, you know, that it didn't take a lot to make a big effect. And, uh, you know, I hope that other hackers and other, you know, people with a position uh, with a, you know, where they can take that little bit of leverage and make good things happen in the world that they take the opportunity. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Next week's B-Side episode will be an interview I did two years ago with Chris Weissapel, aka Wellpond, about his experiences during the at-stake days and in particular about the now-famous Senate hearing. In all honesty, I was pleasantly surprised by your, our listeners' reactions to the Loft episode. Judging by the number of comments and shares on Twitter, it's obvious that many of you remember Loft fondly and appreciate their work in the 90s. For example, AP wrote, quote, Excellent nostalgic foray into trailblazing scene, hacker space culture, blazed by legends. JG added, quote, You gotta love a bit of Loft my heroes of the time, and helped to bring the perils of ignoring security to life in a few boardrooms, as well as getting some people out of deep holes. Loft crack. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff. End quote. Spyphone2010, who says he or she is a government coder and reverse engineer for the NSA, reminisced on Loft's special CD that was full of good stuff, and user Avid, from Boston, who is apparently into old tech and vintage computers, actually uploaded a picture of the said CD. And lastly, Count Zero himself, John Lester in real life, added a few pictures of the loft space itself. This is so cool. I mean, it was just like I always imagined a hackerspace would look like. So, thanks to all of our listeners who participated in the Twitter threads about the episode, and you're all welcome, of course, to join the conversation at at MaliciousLife or follow me at at RanLevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find, as always, full transcripts of almost all of our episodes. Cyber Reason's Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Our senior producer is Nate Nelson, with sound design by Beno Habari. 
I'll use the opportunity to remind you that we at PI Media also create special audio documentaries called Family Sounds for families who wish to preserve their family's history and legacy. So if you've got a parent or grandparent who celebrates an important birthday, Family Sounds might be the gift you were looking for. Check us out at familysounds.co. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.